Well, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn with me in them to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, we're reading verses 12 to 17. Uh, and what we're reading in today's passage is, uh, it's interesting because uh, Paul has been making an argument in 1 Timothy chapter 1, and today he begins a digression. He kind of um, gets a little sidetracked. But he gets sidetracked because he starts talking about the gospel, and he gets excited and filled with joy and gratitude. And so he actually just kind of leaves his argument for a bit, just explodes in a real joyful um, expl- explanation and description of the gospel. And so uh, we're reading that today in a sermon entitled Mercy for This Reason. And so if you are able, I invite you to stand with me because standing is an act of worship. By standing, we show our reverence for God's word as we read and receive it. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, I'm reading verses 12 to 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. Please be seated and join me in prayer once more. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the word that you give to us. Um, But of course, uh, merely receiving it and hearing it uh, with our own uh, intellect, with our own faculties, uh, would be no different than simply reading um, the words of good literature. We need your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts so that we might understand and that those who have ears would truly hear, hear the voice of our God speaking to us now. So build us up as your people, as we pay attention to your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, if you notice in our passage today, Paul says a very uh, well-known line, verse 15, um, that is very popular. Maybe you've heard it. He uh, uh, says in verse 15, I'll just read it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Uh, Now, you may be more familiar with the NIV translation of it. It's a translation I grew up with. Maybe you did as well, where Paul says this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Or maybe if you grew up with uh, the KJV, it'll say something like, the chief of sinners. Uh, And the question for us as we kind of look at that verse is to ask, how can such a great man of God uh, say such a terrible thing about himself? I mean, Paul, we know, was a great missionary, great theologian, great church planter. How could he say that he was the foremost or the worst sinner? Well, you know, quickly off the bat, we got to dismiss two things. One, Paul wasn't posturing to his audience. He wasn't uh, trying to get them to reassure or encourage them. He wasn't saying, oh, my goodness, I'm the worst, so that they might look at him and say, come on, Paul, cheer up. You're the best. We love you. That wasn't what Paul was doing. Nor was he simply uttering pious statements to feign humility, to look humble, because, you know, Christians should say and do things like that, like, oh, I'm so, oh, I'm the worst sinner, oh, I need God's grace and mercy. So what is going on here when Paul says this? What's going on in his heart and mind? What's he thinking? What's he remembering? What's he feeling? And that's what I want to talk about today. 
as we look at this passage. And what we're going to do, as we've been doing in 1 Timothy, is try to go uh, as much verse by verse as possible, and then where appropriate, just slow down and draw out a few implications. I do want to remind you that our series in 1 Timothy is called Living as God's Household. And so the implications I want to draw out aren't just a personal for me personally, but for us as the family of faith. And so we're going to dive in today's passage. We begin by looking at verse 12. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. The verses are up on the screen. Verse 12, Paul writes this, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Now, Paul begins by giving God thanks. Thank you, God, for letting me serve you, because, of course, we know serving God in any shape or form is a privilege. And I hope we understand that even here, that whether you're on the welcome team and you greet our members and new visitors, or you are participating in the beautification day where we're trying to restore dignity to our community by making our church and the neighboring areas presentable, or whether you serve to make events happen, you prepare food and you serve in that way. Serving God is always a privilege. And yet, serving God as an apostle a very unique office in history. I mean, that's not just a privilege. That is an incredibly high honor. And so Paul says, I thank Christ for giving me the strength to do this, for appointing me to this task. Now, in order to understand a little bit of what Paul is saying here, you need to remember Paul's commissioning story, the way Paul was called to God and then commissioned out by God in Acts 9. But if you remember that story, it wasn't that Paul volunteered to serve God. It was clearly a story where God was volunteering Paul, you're going to serve me. Now, if you know about Paul, you know he was the least likely candidate for God to use because of what Paul was intending to do on the road to Damascus. And so, so surprising was Paul's call that after he became a believer, after he was commissioned, um, he went to church. And when he showed up at church, he tried to stick around for fellowship. He tried to drink coffee and get to know people. He, he even visited a community group. But everyone was really suspicious of him. They were really cautious because they knew his story. And so we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 26, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. And you got to understand, Paul didn't look the part of an apostle because all the other apostles up to this point, they fit a specific mold. They looked a certain way. They had a certain story and a certain trajectory. And Paul comes out of left field looking completely different. And so it made people suspicious and cautious and wary about him. And I think about my time when I first entered seminary and how I felt called to the pastoral ministry and showing up and realizing that pretty much everyone else there had the same story. They fit the same mold. And basically that was, uh, we all grew up in Christian families. We went to youth group. Uh, we learned the Bible. We were active. We joined the praise team. We went on mission trips. We loved going to retreats. We all went off to college. You know, we wandered a little bit. We drank, you know, a little bit of the uh, prodigal son lifestyle for a semester or two. But then we, we met the Lord because we were like rebellion against God into the way to go. And we committed our lives to serving in college ministry. We served faithfully. We taught Bible studies. We discipled younger people. And people said, man, we think you're called to ministry. And so everyone who shows up at seminary basically has a story like that. I mean, my two best friends have that same exact story. The only way there's this better is because they both went to Christian colleges. Uh, one majored in pastoral ministry, the other in biblical studies. So they knew from the beginning where they were headed. 
see, there's a stereotype of the type of people God will use in ministry. And I remember having that stereotype broken because there was one classmate of mine who didn't fit the mold at all because uh, we grew up in the church, we met Christ at a young age, we felt called to ministry, and so we went straight from college to seminary. But his path, his trajectory there was entirely different because we grew up in the church, he didn't. We went to college, he didn't. We knew how to play guitar, he didn't even know how to play guitar. What was he doing here? And that's what everyone was thinking. Because while we were active in youth group, and he was active in the gang lifestyle, and while we met Christ going to retreats, he met Christ while in prison reading the book of Romans. We felt called to ministry at a young, immature 18. He felt called to ministry at 35, married and with children. And he broke the stereotype. And now when you hear that story, you're probably going, wow, that's amazing. Well, you only say, wow, that's amazing because you know Paul's story but Paul was the first one when his story came out. Nobody said, wow, that's amazing. Everyone said, we can't trust this guy. What if he's lying? Because all the other apostles, their stories fit a very specific mold. They were minding their own business. A Jewish rabbi named Jesus comes up to them, says, drop everything and follow me. They said, okay. They followed him for three years. They lived with him. They were discipled with him, by him. They ate with him. They saw his miracles. They heard his teachings. They were present at his crucifixion. They witnessed his resurrection. They received his commission. They saw his ascension. All the disciples fit a certain mold. And here comes apostle Paul, very different in every way with a past and history that was sinful and shameful, with a past that should have, frankly, disqualified him from being saved, let alone serving God. And Paul then, fully aware of this, is more filled with gratitude because he knows from what he was saved. He knows his past, and so it's not with boasting and joy that he shared, oh, I, I used to live like, life like this before Christ, but with a lot of sobriety and vulnerability, he gives a brief autobiographical sketch. In verse 13, he writes, the formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Now, Paul calls himself these three things. Blasphemer means someone who blasphemed the name of God. He um, defamed the name of God. He attacked uh, Jesus' reputation and spoke lies about him. He blasphemed Christ. And he wasn't proud of it. And then he calls himself a persecutor, meaning that he spent all of his time strategizing ways to persecute the early church and to persecute Christians to bring them down. If you actually remember the full story of Acts 9, Paul was on the Damascus road when he met Jesus because his mission was to go there and arrest the Christians. We read in Acts 9, but Saul, that is Paul, saw his Hebrew name, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. He wasn't, he wasn't proud of the fact that he was a persecutor, very deeply ashamed. And then third and finally, he calls himself an insolent opponent. On different translations, violent man, violent aggressor. I, I prefer the translation arrogant man. Because that word insolent, the, the Greek root word is the word hubris, meaning he was proudly defining God, uh, proudly defined against God in his heart, in his mind, his attitude. He, he stood in hostility against God because he wanted to be God. He didn't want to serve God. Now, in that, these three things, scholars note a, a sort of progression here that in his former life, there were first kind of sins against God in speech. That's blasphemy, right? Sins against God in speech. 
then it increased the sins against God in action. That's persecution. And finally, sins against God in his heart. That's insolent opposition. And Paul's point here is that he in no way deserved to be saved, to be chosen, to be commissioned. And this is why he begins by giving God thanks. The unworthy was counted worthy. The unfaithful was judged to be faithful. The enemy of cross was called to be a servant of the cross. So Paul goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, although I live like that, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, despite my wretched sin, despite all the ways I sinned against God, not only in speech, but in deed, but also in my heart and attitude, God didn't treat Paul as he deserved, because Paul deserved wrath and judgment. And yet he received mercy and overflowing grace. Here's actually something that all Christians need to learn. We don't receive God's mercy because of our merit. We don't receive God's mercy because of our merit. In fact, God's mercy is never merited. God's mercy is never achieved. It's only ever received. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. Paul certainly didn't. And I said, God is so merciful, so overflowingly gracious that he saved me and chose me and used me. Now, he says this phrase here that I want to clarify. He says, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And maybe at first reading you go, well, that sounds like he's saying that God was merciful to him because he was innocent. Oh, he didn't know what he was doing, so he must have been innocent. But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, I was blinded in unbelief, meaning I didn't know, I didn't fully understand what I was doing. He was sitting without realizing and being completely aware the degree of his offense. And for us, it's easy to say, well, okay, well, he's ignorant, so he must be innocent. But Paul's saying, no, 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 I received mercy even though I was ignorant, meaning even in my ignorance, I was still guilty. That your ignorance of whether you're committing sin or not doesn't mean you are innocent. You are still guilty. But Paul says, that's the good news. The good news isn't God is so merciful. If you don't know what you're doing, he'll forgive you. I mean, on the surface, that may sound like good news, but that's not good news because it doesn't actually say anything good about God. You want to know good news? Good news is this. God is so merciful and gracious. When you sin against him and you're guilty and you're undeserving, he still will save you. He will still redeem you. That's good news. And so Paul says, I lived a life like this. I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was doing some bad stuff. But God is so merciful. He showed infinite grace and a depth of mercy that he could never imagine. See, friends, that's the good news. God never returns mercy in exchange for your merit. Instead, you come and you receive mercy when you present to him just the mess of your sins. Okay, that's what verses 12 and 14 are about. Now, as a household of God, as a spiritual family of faith, what might that mean? And let me draw out an implication here from these verses. And that's this. First implication, the gospel frees you to be vulnerable before others. You see, in order to highlight God's mercy and grace, Paul was willing to share his shameful past. He was willing to open up about something uncomfortable embarrassing. He wasn't proud of his former life. 
And yet he knew that it gave powerful testimony to God's character, God's grace, God's mercy, God's saving purposes that he was willing to open up and share. You see, Paul's confidence wasn't in what he had done for God. His confidence was rather in what God had done for him. And that's a powerful dynamic of the gospel that works in the Christian life. When you know that God's mercy are new for you every morning, when you know that he doesn't just give you a thimble of grace, but drowns you in his waterfall of grace, it actually frees you to be vulnerable, to actually begin to share, because it's people's opinion of you aren't the most important thing. When you're, when you're so concerned with how people will perceive you, then it's not only difficult to share about things, it's actually really dangerous to share about your sins and your struggles, your weaknesses, your failures, your past. Because if, if all that matters is people's opinion of you, then when you share, you're actually opening yourself up to, what, more shame, more embarrassment, ridicule, regret, criticism, condemnation. When you put more value in what you've done against God than the good news of what God has done for you, then you'll never share your struggles. You'll always stash them away. You'll keep them in secret, vowing that they'll never see the day of light, the light of day. You see, some of you actually are living this way right now, and you know it's terribly lonely and frustrating and isolating because it's tiring to come to church, church of all places, but you come to church week after week, and you come ready to what? Mask your weaknesses with your strengths. You come ready to keep your struggles hidden behind a veneer of success. You come guarded to ensure the past remains unknown and ambiguous. And that's why it's possible that Christians come to church every week, be surrounded by a company of other believers, and yet still feel no community. Because genuine, intimate, spiritual fellowship requires vulnerability. Now, I'm not saying you share everything with everyone. It requires self-control, wisdom, discernment. But generally, the reality is this. When you're swimming in the ocean of God's mercy and grace, you're not afraid to drown in people's judgment and criticism. And so you share. Like Apostle Paul did. You have the freedom to say, I'm not proud of it, but, but this is how I lived, or this is what I'm struggling with. Why? Because when you share about yourself, you're not actually drawing attention to yourself. As a Christian, when you open up about weaknesses and failures and mistakes and the mess-ups of your life, you're actually showing and telling us something about the grace and mercy of God. And let me explain it like this. Like, one thing marriage has done in my life is really freed me up to be more um, honest and forthright in sharing about like, my mistakes, my blunders as a husband. And there are a lot of them. And that's okay. Because when I share those things about myself, although I'm putting myself at risk for you judging me, when I share those things, I'm simultaneously telling you something about my wife's patience and her love and her forgiveness. See, by implication, when I open up about the ways I failed and messed up as a husband, it's actually highlighting more of her grace. Because then you hear like, oh, you said that? Hey, you said those words? You did that? And she still loves you? God is gracious. And so is she. Because here's the thing. If you have an impression that I never mess up as a husband, that I'm the perfect husband, then I look good, but Eunice doesn't. If you have the impression that I never mess up and I have it all put together and collected, then you will go, 
Wow, Andrew, I really appreciate that's amazing. And wow, Eunice must be lucky. But if I share the ways that I'm not the greatest husband, and that I'm still learning, and that I still fail, and she forgives, and not only says something about me, it says something more about her. In the same way, dear Christians, when you share, when you're open, when you're vulnerable, when you're honest about the struggles of life, what you're saying really is, this God still loves me. He's still so infinite in mercy and abounding in grace that even when I make mistake after mistake, even when I still struggle, he is for me. I think that does something powerful in the community, the spiritual family, becoming vulnerable, confessing sins and shortcomings with one another, displaying God's grace and mercy over you. What would it look like? What would it look like in this church, in our spiritual family, if we were so freed by the gospel, we were so, we were far more consumed with what God has done for us than ashamed of the things we've done against God, that we no longer hid behind curated social media posts that posture a life that says, oh, I'm worry-free and I'm stress-free. What would it look like to really open up about the things going on in our hearts instead of playing things off as if life is good and okay and there's really no problems? I think there's something powerful here. Like Paul, we could say, you know, I formally live like this. I presently struggle like this, but I received mercy. And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me. The gospel has a way of freeing us to be vulnerable before one another because our confidence is in what God has done for us, not the shame of the things that we've done against God. And Paul then continues in verse 15. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The foremost. The worst, the NIV says. The chief, the King James says. But the question is, in what way was Paul the worst? In what way was he the chief of sinners? Because from what we know about him, at least in the rest of the New Testament, I mean, he seems like a pretty good guy. It's like, yeah, I get it. Paul, I get it. Like, don't beat yourself up too much. You, 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 you did make a mistake, and we, and we see that in the book of Acts. You did some shady things. But, I mean, you wrote like half the New Testament. You've planted more churches, you know, than we could ever dream of. You've spread the gospel far and wide. What do you mean? Like, yeah, you did some bad things, but focus on the good things, the good and godly things you've done. You know, critical scholars read this passage and they say, well, Paul put it, couldn't have possibly meant this. He was exaggerating or he was posturing. But the reality is, I think Paul meant every word of what he said when he said, I'm the worst sinner. And I think actually when you get the gospel, you too will be able to confess, I am the worst sinner. And the way Paul was able to do this was because he wasn't measuring himself against the scale of other people. He wasn't comparing his sins to others' sins. Because if he did, he can say, well, I sin more than you or I sin less than you. My sins are worse than that, but not as bad as that. Because here's the thing, and, and you may have skipped by, so I want to draw your attention to it. Look at verse 15 very carefully. Did you notice the tense that Paul uses? It's a little detail, but we so often just kind of skip by it. What does Paul says? He says, of whom I am the foremost. Of whom I am presently the foremost. He doesn't say of whom I was the foremost. You see, if Paul was speaking about his life before Jesus, he was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent, and then he said, I'm the worst, you'd be like, yeah, actually, you were. <laughs> Sorry, like, yeah, you were pretty bad. I was the foremost. Amen, Paul. But he says, I am. 
He's speaking as a saved Christian. He's speaking as an apostle of Christ. What in the world does he mean by saying, I presently am, while being sanctified, while following Jesus, while serving the kingdom, I am the worst. How can he say such a thing? And the only answer is because Paul looked inward and he knew the depth of depravity in his heart. Because he was familiar with his heart in a way that nobody else was familiar with because all we can see is Paul's outward actions, all the churches he planted and the people he evangelized and the places he went with the gospel. But Paul says, that's all you see. You don't know what's going on in here. And if you did, you know I honestly mean it when I say I am the worst of sinners. Friends, the same is true of you. If you only judge who you are and how you measure up compared to what other people are doing, you will always find people worse than you. You will always not be that bad. As long as evil people exist in the world, as long as bombings in Israel happen, as long as there are history books that tell you are the great evils and horrors of history and all the great evil perpetrators, you will never be the foremost. There will always be someone worse than you. In fact, you don't even need to go to the history books and look over the world. As long as there are other people maybe in your aisle that you can look over and compare yourself against them, you'll never see yourself as the worst sinner. But that's exactly the problem. Because all we do is look outward and we refuse to look inward. When we inward, we discover, okay, outwardly, I may not be a persecutor, I may not be a blasphemer, but friends, all of us are arrogant and defiant against God in heart and attitude. Just look at the way we judge others and criticize them. Even the way that we justify ourselves and make ourselves feel better by doing what? Maximizing other people's sins while minimizing our own. You see, when you actually come to grips with the reality of what's inside of you, you become, you become more and more able to confess, I am the foremost of sinners. But the good news here is that realizing I'm the foremost of sinners isn't like an iron gavel coming down upon your life, sentencing you to eternal despair and condemnation. The good news is when you say, I'm the worst you don't do so with hopelessness, not as long as you're looking at Jesus. Because with your eyes fixed on him, you can say, I am the worst while remaining hopeful. Why? Because of what Paul shares in the next verse, verse 16. But I am the worst, the foremost, but I receive mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. I am the foremost, I am the chief. But Jesus Christ has been infinitely patient with me. And he promises, he holds forth the promise of eternal life. You see, friends, it's only safe to confess that you are a great sinner when you're then able to confess that Jesus is the greater Savior. The reality is, sometimes when you sin... Maybe you're caught in the same sin. Maybe a sin that you defeated crops up again. Who's the first person to lose patience with you? It's yourself. You condemn yourself. You beat yourself up. But Paul is telling you the good news that your Savior is infinitely patient. He never once loses his temper at your failings. The promise of eternal life is never in jeopardy because of your performance. The gospel frees us to say, I am the worst sinners, which leads to this implication for the family of faith. Implication number two, the gospel produces humility before others. Paul is able to say, I am the chief of sinners. Now, 
that wasn't during a period where sanctification was slow in his life. That's not what's happening. I don't believe when Paul said, I'm the chief sinner, I'm the worst sinner, I don't believe he was objectively sinning more. I think what was happening is as he grew in the Lord, he was understanding the holiness of God more and against the holiness and light of God. Areas of his life that were always kept in darkness started to get exposed. So when Paul grew in the gospel, it didn't lead to greater self-righteousness. It led to greater repentance. And I like to see the same reality take root in your life when the gospel pierces you. Humility that's produced in you because you realize the mercy you've received, the salvation you have, was not based on anything good about you. But it's only by God's initiative. Because the reality is, you can't be proud when you look across the room and you look at others, you look across the sea at the evils and horrors being done across the world, you look back at your history books and the evils done across and you realize that my condition is the same as others, born in sin. Now, I heard a preacher give this illustration. He said, imagine you have two acorns and one acorn um, you take and you place it in a cold cement basement where it sees no light. And you leave it in there for five years. And you take another acorn and you take it into the forest and you place it in an area where the soil is rich with nutrients, where the sunlight hits it perfectly and it receives enough rainfall. And then you come back in a few years. The acorn in the cold cement basement will have shriveled up and rotted while the acorn in the field would have grown to be a tremendous tree. How ridiculous would it be if that acorn then looked at the other acorn and said, what's wrong with you? How come you're like that? Why, it was the same acorn. That acorn had no decision of where it was dropped, the soil in which it was placed, the sunlight in which it received, the water in which it drank. In the same way, we as sinners, equal sinners, can't boast, be proud of our salvation because we had nothing to do with it. We've all equally received mercy, not achieved it. When we grasp that, the household of faith we begin to look at others and we hear their struggles. We hear people's sins. We hear people being vulnerable. And we don't pass judgment. We're not arrogant over them and critical, self-righteous. The gospel produces this kind of humility. And I think when this kind of humility takes root in our household of faith, this church becomes a safe place. A safe place to open up. You know that that vulnerability the gospel frees you to do with humility actually allows that vulnerability to take place. Because you know that when I come here, there will be no finger pointing at me when I open up about my struggles to say, you're the worst. That with two fingers, we respond, I'm the worst. And then we point to the Savior and say, but he is the great one, the patient one the savior of our sins. Dear friends, I hope the gospel would produce this type of humility so that others in your life aren't thought of as steps on a ladder. How do you get to the top of a ladder? You have to step on the steps. Sometimes if we divide our sense of righteousness um, by how we compare, we end up stepping over other people in order to feel better about ourselves. But when we realize that in sin, we're at the bottom of the ladder, we realize how far Christ has come down to save us. The gospel produces humility in the household of God. 
so that people see the church as a hospital for recovering sinners, not as a museum for perfected saints. And Paul finishes then this section with the doxology in verse 17. Read with me there. Paul writes, The king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this is where Paul kind of tricks us. You ever have a conversation with somebody and they start wrapping up their thing, grab their purse, put their wallet in their pocket, and you're like, okay, this conversation is wrapping up. But it goes on for another hour. That's what Paul's doing. The, this doxology, you're like, okay, the letter's wrapping up. But this is not an ending. This doxology is not an ending. It's an explosion, an eruption of joyful praise because Paul can't go one step further without celebrating God and marveling in his grace because he just talked about how good God was. God, the king of the ages, the only God, the one who deserves honor and glory forever and ever. And all this leads to our third and last implication. The gospel leads us to sing God's praises. Paul's showing us this is the inevitable end of those who are swept up in the mercy and grace of God. It's not siloed silence. I can't stay quiet. But it leads to gathered singing, corporate worship. Those who've had their great sins forgiven by a great Savior now have a great song to sing. I close with the story of John Newton. Many of you know John Newton. And you know him because of the famous hymn, um, Amazing Grace, that he composed. But what's lesser known about Newton is that um, in his early life, he was a slave trader. He actually was the captain of a slave trading ship that would sail the west coast of Africa. And one day, in, um, in the midst of a crazy storm, he was so desperate, so afraid, that he cast himself onto the mercy and grace of God. And there God met him, and he underwent surgery under the, the scalpel of the gospel. And he was transformed. And he went from slave trader to hymn writer. And he penned those famous words, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. A wretch! And Paul understood this reality. John Newton understood this reality. I am a wretch, the worst of sinners, the foremost and the chief, and yet God's grace came to me. And John Newton experiencing that was led then to devote his life to singing God's praises and writing these amazing hymns. Near the end of his life, he's quoted as saying this, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Dear friends, what are we doing every week when we gather as a household of God? We're doing two things in this worship. One, we are remembering that we are great sinners, and we are rejoicing that we have a great Savior. And we remember these things. We sing them. We congregate as the redeemed. We come together and say, you too, you've received God's mercy too? You know his overflowing grace? Let's sing about it some more. And this is why singing is so important. Do you know what we're doing here on Sunday morning? Sunday morning is choir practice, getting us ready for the great hymn of heaven. We're rehearsing for the song that all the ransom and the redeemed will sing. And I'll tell you now, this will be a song that the angels will be jealous of. The angels will be envious of. You know why? The angels don't know of the mercy and grace of God. You see, the seraphim sing, 
God is great. But the saints sing, God is gracious. We have a song to sing, and we've rehearsed it now as we respond in joy and gladness and gratitude and praise to give God honor and glory so that the song that we sing today is practice for the song that will resound in heaven for all eternity. The gospel leads us to sing God's praises. Would you pray with me?